And so many times Satan does accuse us, and uh, our own conscience will accuse us from time to time, and certainly other people will accuse us. And uh, the fact is we are guilty from time to time. But uh, we look to the one who died for us and who is seated right now at the right hand of the majesty on high and ever lives to make intercession for us. And uh, our faith is in him, in him alone. Well, I want us to look this morning. We're going to be continuing our study in Galatians. But uh, before we even turn to Galatians, I want to, uh, I want to look at another passage of Scripture over in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I just want to say that uh, our world is just in a huge mess right now, isn't it? And I think more than, than I ever remember in my lifetime, and always there has been uh, uh, sin abounding, but uh, it seems to me that sin is super abounding in our day. And the Apostle Paul, in writing to Timothy, the last letter that Paul wrote, he said that in the last days, in the end times, things would get worse. And Jesus said the same thing. That, uh, In fact, he said by the time Jesus comes back, it'd be hard to even find faith on the earth. And... Uh, uh, listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And see if, if you might think that this is actually coming right out of today's newspaper and uh, rather than out of the Bible. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. That for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness. In other words, they won't just totally throw out church and everything like that. They'll still have church. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now, Paul is saying that there is coming a time, and I believe we're in that time, when uh, all of these things will characterize the culture of the last time, of the end days. And uh, I, I don't know that there's ever been a time, but obviously all these things have always existed. But the Bible teaches that they'll just get worse and worse and worse. That is, we draw nearer and nearer to the end that these kind of things will characterize the culture to a greater degree than they did before. And when I listen to the news or read the uh, the news or, or whatever, today I just see all of these things. I just see selfishness and arrogance and brutality and anger and hatred and violence and all these kinds of things just escalating to a degree greater than I've ever seen in my lifetime. 
And, uh, and so the question is, what, what fixes that? And uh, some people say, well, I think if we can just have enough laws, if we just pass enough laws, that'll, that'll fix it. Well, that's ridiculous. There are already a lot of laws. And to, uh, to pass laws, for instance, saying that nobody's allowed to have a gun or anything like that, that's just not going to fix anything. People will find a way to carry out these kinds of things no matter, no matter what laws are passed. I think there already is a law that says don't kill people. Isn't there? A, yeah. That doesn't seem to stop, though, does it? I mean, all, just in, in, every week. We read of somebody who goes in with a gun or a knife or a bomb or something and kills uh, a bunch of people. And it's already against the law. And so there's no way to pass enough laws to, uh, to change society. So what is the solution? Well, the solution is on an individual basis. It's out of the heart of man that murders and thefts and all these things come. And the only hope, really, honestly, the only hope for our culture to ever get any better is for the church to take seriously our responsibility to live a godly life and to take seriously our responsibility to share the gospel and the power of God to change the hearts of men with people who are not Christians. And we cannot expect, and nor should we expect, to see ungodly people live godly lives. But the fact is, we should expect to see Christian people live godly lives. We should. And that means that the, 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 the judgment of God actually begins with the house of God, with the people of God. And God says, if we're going to see change throughout our culture, there has to begin, it has to begin with a renewal, a revival, a coming alive afresh and anew among God's own people. And throughout history, anytime there has been uh, a nationwide or even a regional renewal like the Great Awakening in the uh, 1700s and the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s, it always started among God's people. And incidentally, it usually started among young people. It's amazing. The, uh, the Great Welsh Revival took place in Wales back in the uh, uh, early 1900s. Uh, started with a nine-year-old girl standing up in a prayer meeting and just saying, oh, how I do love Jesus. And when she said that, the people who were there said it was like the Spirit of God just fell in convicting power on that whole congregation and that was the beginning. That was the touchstone. That was the flint stone that started a revival that swept throughout the country of Wales. Now, we were in Wales a few years ago, and it was sad to me that nobody that we talked to ever heard of the Great Welsh Revival. A hundred years later, and nobody in Wales even knew that it had happened, but it did happen. So uh, so here's the, the question 
for us. Will we pull away from the world and bow our hearts and lives before the Lord Jesus Christ? And that's what makes the difference. Now, uh, how this relates to the book of Galatians, I want to just say that, well, let's go ahead and look at Galatians chapter 3. And what has happened, Paul is talking to a group of believers who have been uh, invaded by a group of Judaizers, they're called, who were teaching that the only way that you could be right with God was by keeping the law. And that if you would keep the law and keep every detail of the law, that God would approve of you and that God would count you righteous. Well, Paul had gone to these Gentile Galatians and had preached nothing at all about the law. He had gone to them and had preached that Jesus Christ, God's Son, had died on a cross and been raised from the dead and that all who would put their faith and confident trust in Him and receive Him as Lord of their life, believe that He died for their sins, that God would say they are right. They are righteous. They are right with God. And so these people, these Gentiles, they knew nothing about the Jewish law. They were Gentiles. And so they listened to that message. They received it joyfully. And they were excited about being right with God. But then there came into their fellowship some people from Jerusalem who were saying to them, you have to keep the law that was given to Israel. You have to obey the law as it was given to Moses. And your men will need to be circumcised. You'll need to restrict yourself from certain foods. You must not eat certain things. And, and, and you, you, can't, uh, you have to observe certain rituals and rites and days and ceremonies. And the people were confused. And by the way, did you know that it is easier to live under law than it is to live under grace. Because if you're living under law, you can kind of evaluate yourself. You can have a checklist. Well, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. And you can feel pretty good about yourself. But God says, no, we're not under law. We have been saved by grace through faith in Christ. And uh, that doesn't mean that there are some things that we shouldn't do. but, But even at that, Jesus said, I have come to establish a new covenant. And that new covenant is based on one law. And he said, all of the prophets, all of the law is summed up in this one law. And it's the law of love. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love other people as yourself. And he said that sums up all of the law. And so he says to the 
Galatians, as he's writing to them, he says, I think somebody has put a spell on you. He said, how in the world is it possible that I came to you and held up before you the cross of Christ and told you about the grace of God and you received it with joy and you said, we are free. And now you are very quickly being sucked into this false idea that salvation is through law-keeping rather than grace-receiving. And so now... he has started in this third chapter to talk about how that God made a promise to Abraham before 400 years before he ever gave the law and that Abraham knew nothing of the law but Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now listen, the reason it's important to us today is because there are only two ways that are taught by which people can be right with God. Last Friday, a week ago, Friday now, Good Friday, I said that the number one question that everybody ought to be asking is how is it possible that a sinner like me can have any hope of standing in the presence of a perfectly holy God and being accepted into his presence and into his family. How is that possible? Now, that's not the question most people are asking today. Most people are asking questions about how they can make more money and how they can be healthier and all this kind of stuff. But none of those questions are going to matter in 100 years. No matter how healthy you are, no matter how wealthy you are, in 100 years, you're not going to be healthy or wealthy. But, The real question that everybody ought to be asking, how is it possible for a sinner to have any hope of standing in the presence of a holy God and being accepted? Now, there are only two answers to that question. One of them is by something that I do. Now, that it breaks off into a thousand different categories. There are those who would say, well, it's by rituals. It's by ceremonies. It's by observance of uh, various uh, 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 religious uh, activities. Some would say it's by good works. It's by trying hard to live a good life. And there are people, and no doubt will be people, who stand before a holy God someday, and the question, if the question were to ask, be asked of them, what, why should I let you come in? And they would give this answer, because I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to keep the Ten Commandments. I've tried to, I, I, I went to church. I was a Baptist. I got baptized. I None of those answers will hold any, any weight. There's only one answer that is a right answer. And that is, I believed that Jesus took my sin and died for it on the cross. And then he gave to me his righteousness. 
and I received it all by faith alone. Friend, that is the only answer, the only answer. And there will be people who will say, well, I lived in a monastery. I never, I never did anything. I, I kept myself pure and clean, and, and, and I lived a good uh, life the best I could. But the problem is the best we can is not even beautiful in the sight of God. As a matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah said that my righteousness, my righteousness, self-righteousness in the sight of God is like filthy rags, hospital bandages that have been tossed into that can that has the mark of deadliness on it. That's what the best righteousness you have looks like in the sight of God. And God is looking for perfect righteousness. And that's the only way that's the only way you get into heaven is if you have perfect righteousness. You say, well, well, that's impossible. I've already messed that up. And the truth is, if you could live from this day forward and never sin again, you still couldn't have perfect righteousness because you've already sinned. But the fact is that you couldn't start today and live perfectly righteous from here on out. So it's a predicament, folks. It's a real dilemma. So how do I get God's righteousness on my account? How do I get rid of my sin? And Paul is saying the law could never do that. The law could never do that. So let's listen. I'm just, I've already, my introduction has been longer than my sermon this morning. So uh, let's look at Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. And we'll read through the rest of that chapter. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. If you go... Make out your will. You go to a lawyer. You make out a will, and it all gets signed. Uh, then it's it's done. the The will has been made, and and you can't have a a cousin or even a son or a daughter who says, "I want to change his will." No. Once it's been ratified, it's done. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his single offspring doesn't say to his offsprings plural like many but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ when God said to Abraham I'm making you a promise and these promises are to you and to Jesus that's what he's saying here okay this is what I mean the law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant 
that was previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. In other words, the law is not going to change the promise that was given to Abraham. And, And here was the promise. The Bible says that God, that Abraham believed God. And God said, your faith, by faith, I count you righteous. But if the inheritance comes by the law, it's, it no longer comes by promise. In other words, if it comes by me keeping the law, then I have earned it rather than have received it. If the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? What is the purpose of the law? By the way, the Bible tells us in the book of Romans and other places too that the law is good. And it was given for some good purposes, but never, ever, ever was the law given by which men could be right with God. So let's listen. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, who is the offspring? That's Christ. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. When God gave the law, the Bible tells us that he gave it through the intermediates of angels to Moses. So why the law? Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, if God could have given the law, God gave the law to Israel, and they didn't keep the law. As a matter of fact, they broke every one of the laws. And you just read the prophets. I've just been reading Isaiah this last week, and it's just amazing to hear Isaiah say, you you people, you've been blessed so much. God has given you his perfect law, and you have just broken it, broken it, broken it, broken it. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, We're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And that word for sons there is the word that means full-grown sons. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I know that's a 
lengthy passage, and I probably need to do about six sermons on it, but, but I'm not going to. I just want to say that he mentions here several things about the law. He says the law cannot change the promise of God. The law came much later. God had given a promise to Abraham by who received it by faith, and the law cannot change the promise that was made. The law is not greater than the promise, and he makes that clear. He said the law was temporary. It was added until the seed, the Messiah, the offspring should come. What did the law do? The law was like a mirror to show us how far we had missed the glory of God. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. So God gives the law as a way of saying, this is what perfect righteousness would look like. And we all look into it and we see we have missed it. Not just by an inch, but by maybe a mile. We've all fallen short of God's perfect ideal. I don't know that I've ever talked to anybody who, well, maybe maybe one or two, but almost everybody I talk to will admit that they have sinned. I think I've talked to two people who told me that they had never sinned which they were sinning when they said that, of course. But uh, one man said he lived above sin down in New Orleans. He had an apartment up above a bar, so he said he lived above sin. That's about the only way we can live above sin is to live in an apartment above it. But uh, if we, thank you, if we say we have no sin, then we're just tricking ourselves. And God's truth is not in us. So it's a serious problem. So how do, we, how do we get rid of sin? Well, the law comes along not to take away our sin, but it comes to reveal our sin. It comes to show us just how sinful we really are. And he says that the law was like a, a guardian. The word uh, here is, is the word that, that meant somebody who walked a child to school and, uh, and stood with them uh, at school. And, and I've read that, that that guardian actually had a stick in his hand and that if the kid during class starts dozing off, that he would reach up and tap him on the head. I often thought we need one of those in church sometimes. But uh, <clears throat> this guardian would, uh, would, would walk the kid to school, make sure he paid attention, walk him back home, make sure that he got home safely. And he said that's what the law was. The law was like, like our, our guardian, our, uh, what's it, you remember the word, Brother John? The, there's a Greek word there for that. I can't, I can't think of it right now, but uh, uh, 
Anyway, uh, this, this guardian would go along and, and take care of the kid, make sure that he got to school and got home. But then when that kid got grown, the guardian was dismissed. So we don't need you any longer. And he said the law was like that. It was our guardian to bring us to Christ. But once you're grown, once you've come to the place of genuine faith, true faith, then you don't need that guardian any longer. So the law was temporary. It was a, 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 a mediator. But it is not contrary to the promise. The promise stands. And <clears throat> the law was not given to provide life. Verse 21 said that if, if the law could have given life, if, if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be by the law. But what does the law do? In fact, Paul says in the book of Romans that the law actually stirs up sin in us, doesn't it? It really does. It makes us, it makes us want to sin. I know I've told you this story before, but when I was six years old, sitting on the living room, the kitchen floor, drawing a picture on a piece of paper, first grade, I was in the first grade, had one of those big old yellow pencils with a great big eraser on the end of it. And my dad walked through and saw me drawing that picture. He looked at me and he said, son, don't you stick that eraser up your nose. Now, why in the world would he say something like that? I had never even thought about it. It had never entered my mind to stick that eraser up my nose. But after he said it and walked on in out of the kitchen, I looked at that eraser and I thought, I wonder if that would fit up my nose. And then I took it and began to just kind of rub it around on my nose. And I kept looking to see if he was coming. And then I noticed it got a little lubricated as I began to wiggle it around my nose. And then I just eased it up in my nose. And I pushed it on up a little further. And about that time, my dad came back in the room. I jerked the pencil out. But the eraser didn't come out. It stayed up in my nose. And my dad said, son... What's wrong with you? Because I began, I said, I'm going to race around my nose. He said, what? He said, didn't I tell you not to do that? Yes, sir. And I tried to get it out. I tried by pushing the pencil back up in it. I just pushed it further up in there. They ended up having to take me to the doctor and have that taken out by, by a doctor. And my dad said, Son, what's wrong with you? I thought I had a sensible son. Why in the world would you? And I said, Dad, I, I don't know. I, I never even thought about doing that until you told me not to do it. And did you know that the law has that same effect on us? All of us have walked by, seen signs that said, don't 
do this. And there's something in us that just wants to do it, isn't it? When I was in Gatlinburg, Tennessee years ago, I was walking down the street, and there was a hole in the wall, and up it said, do not look in this hole. And I thought, I wonder why. I walked on past it, but I couldn't get that out of my mind. Later that day, I walked back by, and there was nothing in that hole. I know, because I looked. Why? Just because a law said not to do it. They don't do it. And that's his point here, is that the law was given to reveal sin. It was given, he says in Romans, it actually stirs up desire in us. It's God's way of saying, I want to show you just how wicked your heart really is. I'm going to tell you not to do some things, and you're going to find you're going to want to do them. I'll tell you, don't do some things. I mean, uh, do some things, and you're going to say, I don't want to do those things. So the law was given to reveal sin, but mainly the law was given to prepare the way for Jesus. It was given as a way to lead us to Christ. He was the, the guardian. He was, bothers me, I can't think of that name. What? Par- no, no. Uh-uh, that's not it either. I want to say Prodromos, but that's not it either. It's, uh, but anyway, he was the, uh, the one who would take the student by the hand and bring him to class and bring him home and ultimately bring him to the day when he would be pronounced as a full son, a full son. And, you know, when a, in the Roman world, whenever a person, when a child reached the age of maturity, he changed, he was given a, a coat or a robe that identified him as a full-grown son. And by the way, you know, at what age boys became men in biblical days? It was 13. 13. I can tell you in one word everything that the Bible has to say about teenagers. Zero. Because in the Bible, there were no teenagers. There's no such thing as a teenager in the Bible. You were either a child or an adult. Paul said, when I was a child, I thought as a child, behaved as a child, but when I became a man. When do you think he became a man? 12 or 13 years old. And he would go through what was called a bar mitzvah, son of the covenant. Son of the commandment. And he would be announced as a full-grown man. How is it we have teenagers in our world today? Teenagers were invented by uh, people who wanted to sell stuff. The first use of the word teenager 
in America was on a radio broadcast back in the 50s by a DJ who talked about teenagers. Nobody had ever heard of a teenager before that. But then everybody said, oh, wait, teenagers. That way, they're too old to be a kid, but they're not old enough to have adult responsibilities. So they can still act like a kid without assuming adult responsibility. It's just, it was a terrible, terrible decision. And now the teenage years extend up to about 30. Now you've got a bunch of Peter Pans running around saying, I'm not a kid anymore. Don't treat me like a kid. But I don't want a job, and I don't want to work hard, and I don't want to be responsible for my behavior. Well, that's a whole different thing. I'm just, but in biblical days, there was a clear demarcation between childhood and adulthood. And whenever they reached that, their childish coat was taken on off. And they put on their adult robe. It was an important day for them. They were now given adult responsibilities and they gained adult privileges. And when he says, as many of you who have put on Christ, I think he has that picture in mind. You have put off the childish behavior of trying to live under the law, and you've put on Christ, the mature adult who lives by faith, not by law. Well, here's the, the point I want to make just to close, is that uh, every one of us, wants to go to heaven when we die and we want to live in the fullness of God's spirit while we're living and we all ask the question how do I do that and again there's two answers but one of them is a wrong answer one of them the wrong answer is I do that by trying the right answer is I do that by trusting the wrong answer is I do that by my own human effort and trying to live by the law. God's answer is no. You do that by believing that Jesus kept the law in every way and he died for sinners. He was buried and he rose again and now he gives to you his righteousness by faith. And let me just Quickly add, that does not mean that we live lawlessly. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> he says, how can, how is it even possible for someone who has <clears throat> died to sin to keep living in sin? No, we do live godly lives. But the godly life, this is very important. I mean, this, this statement is very important. 
the Christian life, the godly life, the life, the obedient life is the result of our faith in Christ, not the means of our righteousness. So when I stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? I guarantee you, I won't say because I was a preacher. I guarantee you, I won't even say because I was a Baptist preacher. I definitely wouldn't say that, actually. I won't say because I tried hard to live a good life. I tried to be a good husband and a good daddy and a a good pastor. No. I'll say my only hope is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, the best day of my life, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. What are you trusting? What are you depending on? If you were to die today, terrible thought, isn't it? But if you were to die today, and you stood before God, and he said, why, why should I let you come in to my holy heaven? What would you say? There's lots of wrong answers. There's only one right answer. And that right answer is, because I believe that Jesus took my sin and gave me his righteousness. By the way, it's not enough just to take away our sin. We have to have his righteousness. But God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God, which is in Christ. So we put on Christ. We stand before God, not as a condemned sinner, but as a accepted son, just in the eyes of a holy God, because of Christ, the offspring. And in him, there's no... Jew or Greek. The Pharisees began every day with this prayer. God, I thank you that you made me a man and not a woman. A Jew and not a Gentile. A free man and not a slave. And Paul says in Christ, those distinctions don't even exist. There is just one body and one faith, one Christ, one Lord, and those who trust him are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this uh, passage that Paul makes so clear to us that we can never, by our effort, by our religion, or by law, we can never be right with a perfectly holy God.
and yet you have made a way. And Jesus himself said, I am the way. I'm the way. And we come to him. We trust in him totally and fully, realizing that the law has certainly played a significant role. It has condemned us, and it has served as our guardian to bring us to Jesus. And I pray that you will help us today to put our trust totally and completely in Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We invite you to like us on Facebook or visit our website, www.bearcreekbaptist.org. If you're not a member of another church, we would like to invite you to join us in person and get to know us and let us get to know you. Have a great week and may the Lord richly bless you.